Hey-ho, Tudor-minded people. I'm Gage. I'm Jessica. We're Tudor Time Machine, and this is episode 52 of our podcast. Wow, thank you for listening. If this is your first time here, it's best to start at episode one. This is a story project, and it goes in order, and we don't want you to miss any of the twists and turns of our tale. We're so fortunate to have listeners from all over the world. It's incredibly exciting for us to be sharing our podcast with everyone. And if you're enjoying it, support us. Buy some Tudor Time Machine swag. Yes, go to our Tudor Time Machine Facebook page, hit the Shop Now button, and get a Do You Tudor tee or a Tudor Time Machine logo sweatshirt and support the podcast at the same time. We'd be so grateful. In our last episode, Constance discovers her own involvement is much more than she could have ever imagined. And we're not saying what it is in case you need to go back to episode one and start. No spoiler. No spoilers. No spoilers. Anyway, Constance is desperate to find a way out. After the reading, we'll have some fun discussing the history beyond our tale and making connections between then and now. Read on, Jesse. Chapter 52, The Garden of Cecil House, in which Constance discovers the nature of Rutland's love. Constance ran, her skirts held high, down to the river and west along the bank. Rutland would help her. She loved Rutland. Rutland loved her. He would untangle these threads. He would save her. She ran toward Cecil House. She did not care who looked. She did not care that she lacked a cloak or hat. She would go to Rutland. Icy water lapped at her feet. Mud was everywhere and the wind beat her back, but she pushed on. Hell's fury, she would not be deterred. Her chest heaving, she reached the grounds, and stumbling around the back of Cecil House, she pulled a stone from the path and hurled it with all her might. The rock struck the wall, missing the window entirely. She tried again. This time it bounced back, striking her forehead. Fie, pitikins, fie! No blood, she noted. Small favors. A head popped out. Rutland? No, it was Bacon. Who's there? he demanded. Seeing her, he disappeared inside and returned with a blanket that he threw down. I will bring him. Constance wrapped herself up, staring at the window, urging him to appear. Constance! His voice sweet. Rutland, I am here. His smiling eyes caught her. Unexpected happiness, you are free. And without hesitation, he jumped from the window, landing smack in front of her. My love! He gathered her up in his arms. Sweet sir, my love, my hope, my own soul. You must appear under the cover of night always. See how it warms you. He leaned over her, brushed his lips on her cheeks, and opened his mouth and kissed her gloriously. My usk ad aras. A friend to the extreme. How Latin expressed the thought better than any other language. And what was he, Constance thought? Amantes sut amantes, she said, as I am lunatic for you. Bacon's voice burst from above. Fange, avant, you will be seen. We will go to Bedford House, Rutland pronounced, scooping up Constance and cradling her in his arms as he strode across the garden. I would not have your feet get colder still. With her arms around his neck, Constance could hear the rhythm of his heart. Rutland, Constance. Rutland Constance, across the yard, perchance, she sang to herself. What are you mumbling there, my sweet? he asked. Your heart sings to me. Indeed? What? Rutland Constance, Rutland Constance, 
they take the lover's stance. Poetical genius. Dearest, she spoke into his neck, giddy with unnamed expectation. We cannot arrive in this way. The Swedish ladies shall inform the entire city. My love, they are fled, and the house stands empty. We alone shall have residence. Her own throbbing heart obliterated the sound of Rutland's as it beat. Oh my, tis now, oh my, tis now, oh my, to lie with him, with him. And he was straining down, his lips locked on her lips. She breathed into him. I have to look where I go, he said with a laugh. The door was open and he carried her through. He set her down and she stood in the great empty hall. Should you like a home such as this, Mistress Constance, come. Constance could not utter words. He swept her up in his arms again and she snuggled close as he found his way to the princess's chamber. Only the bed itself remained. The princess had taken everything, even the curtains. Laying Constance on the rough bolster, Rutland turned to make a fire in the hearth. She did not speak. He was a stag, rippling with power and nobility. But it was his expression, as he turned back to her. The grin, the humour, and those shoulders. Oh, my! He took off his cloak. His jerkin alone was underneath. There is no poem penned that could describe you, my Constance. You are fine lace, intricate, pearly skin, and delicate boned. He lifted off her cloak. You have no lady's maid. I shall have to serve you. Have you no words? I am happy. He unpinned her sleeves and ran his fingers down to the crease of her elbow. His voice was lush. Her slender arms, her soft and supple back. He slid the bodice to her waist. Her tapered sides, all fleshy smooth and white. His fingers traced the poem, and she lost herself to the sense of it, adrift in the cadence of his tenor. He stroked and asked for favours at her neck, his warm hands running across her chest and stomach, caressing, words teasing her ear. Her snowish throat, her breast so round and light, thus in this heaven he took his delight and smothered her with kisses upon kisses, till gradually he came to learn where bliss is. And my most Constance, so shall you. Bliss, bliss, blissfully fleshy, such closeness Constance never knew, a uniting beyond the mind, into the spirit. There was nothing between them, no skin, no bones, no blood. They were one body, they left this world in the intertwining wrapped vines and spring, and Constance could think of nothing but the wish for them to melt together for all and always, their moaning in her ears, far away and close at once, and his love for her was everywhere, the way he clung to her and sought and cried to her, heaven. Her head rested on the bundle he had made from his clothes, how kind he was to go bare-arsed, so she could have a pillow. He lined her profile, stood his index finger at the tip of her nose. Your nose, my love, is perfect. He bounced his finger on it. I am so much taller than you, I could never see it before. 
It should be on a kitten. It is so sweet. Sir, you are too kind. Were the sun's rays fair description of you, it could not shine enough. Oh my, how shall you speak when we go to market? She teased. This Rutland was perfect. You think yourself immortal, sir. Yet wear armour when you plead to the queen. She has a man's arm for throwing goblets. Rutland laughed. I swear to give the queen no cause for disfavour, sweetling. Then you need not worry for my head. Constance relished his confidence. He loved her. Therefore he believed the queen must love her too. Adorable. I am pleased you think she shall be won over so easily. Won over to what, my own darling? To... Constance stopped, suddenly unsure of herself. Oh, I see, I see. Do you mean to our love? And he pulled her head onto his chest. The queen shall not know. Is it possible? Assuredly, yet keep distance from me in the royal presence. I will lose sense to your kitten nose. He kissed her. Constance shied away, but Rutland felt it and placated, Dearest, fear not. I swear on my honour, any children you have by me will want for nothing, and nor shall you, ever. All went cold and hard. My girl, I love you. You are perfection, but my heirs cannot be stoners. His words cleaved their uniting into two wormy bits. She would be dried by the sun and flake off as little scraps of nothing. Lovers should shun the chains of matrimony. What man lusts after his wife? Rutland boomed. Constance, you and I are poetry. The gods smile to save us from the job of the marriage bed. The gods smile on us, her mouth echoed while the pus of her abscessed heart spilt into her blood. I wish every moment could be an hour, but you must to court. I would not bait the basilisk, Mistress Aglineby. He drew Constance up, and his eyes peered into hers. They crinkled as he smiled. Strange. He had dropped an anvil on her head. Could he not see she was flattened? Let us pause here longer, Constance said. I would sleep in your arms. I can deny you nothing. He spread his cloak over her, then lay down, pulling her close. She waited for his even breathing. Sleep came quickly to Rutland and that was irksome. To plunge her into an abyss and then drift off, la la la. She wanted to run madly around the room, screaming, to throw herself against the wall. Rutland did not have the feeling for her she had been so sure of, so very sure of. Only a demon feigned such poignant touch. Only a demon denied that a great love gutted the power of a name. The pain of breathing. She was dry inside. She could not cry. She was a jade, a sneak, a suspect, shackled to Charles Paget, run down by the Cecil blackmail, by her aunt, by her stoner name. Her existence would be nothing but plots, spying, and lies. She must end her life. It was a tragedy, and did not all ladies who loved too truly die? Romeus and Juliet? With Romeus's dagger drawn, her heart and yielded breast desireth to accompany her lover after death. Though that did not fit, as Romeus loved Juliet enough to die for her. Hers was the tragedy of women who died alone. Cleopatra, Dido, Guinevere. No, 
Guinevere did not die. She became a nun. A nun, oh, Charles Paget, the illustrious brotherhood, oh. Where was Rutland's dagger? She would arrange herself near the fire and stab herself in the breast. Should she dress first or die naked? To be cold as ice just before death was fitting. She would hold the dagger before her and plunge it in. But no, stabbing herself was so messy, she could not do it. Poison. That was tidy. But there was no poison in this house. There was nothing. Unloved. She was unloved. Yet she could not die because she was unloved. She should get up. If she did not get up, Rutland would wake and she would have to listen to his babble, his insulting compliments. Or she could die. Dying would solve everything, but then, but then she would be dead. If she got up, she could go to Philomena and tell her she wished to dress as a boy and to serve her. Or she could die, unloved, alone. Being a servant in disguise was far better than dying. She would live out her life witness to snippets of life at court. But she would get a dog, not a pug, some sweet hound who would love her, love her completely, lick her face and sit in her lap, follow her everywhere and never make her cry. A servant and her dog, that was her future. She sat up. The cold tingled. She could not look at Rutland. She did not want to see his peaceful dreaming. Her feet slid to the floor and she gave herself a good shake. Her skirts were twisted into strange puffs around her. She pulled and smoothed until they hung straight. She could put her sleeves on, but there was no way to close the back of her gown. Pathetic. She found the pins of her sleeves. Servants had skills, even when. Pinning these things was tedious and pierced her fingertips. She decided she would only secure them at the top and pull up her bodice and cover herself with the cloak. As she prepared herself, despair and fortitude ebbed and flowed. Her eyes blurred, her eyes cleared, her eyes blurred, her eyes cleared. I wish to perish, yet I ask for health. Wyatt, whether Rutland loved her or no, she loved Rutland. No man, if she ever loved again, would be what he had been to her. She considered a kiss goodbye. She considered smothering him. Flinging his cloak over her head, the fur lining shocked her as it moved against her naked back. She would be killed by vagabonds if she crossed the city in such attire. His clothes would disguise her, his velvet breeches, his jerkin. It was the least he could do. Gathering his things in her arms, she tiptoed out. There was no one in the house, no one in the passageway, but it seemed wrong to dress there. She snuck into the Margrave's old rooms, struggling out of her things, donning Rutland's. She wrapped the belt around the outside of the breeches and stepped into his boots. Testing them in a walk about the room, she yanked them off and filled the toes with her rolled-up sleeves. The result was reasonably good. She would not walk to the door in them. The clatter might wake her soundly sleeping, lying, deceiving lover. She retreated to the kitchen exit. She pulled the hood up over her head. It smelled of Rutland. God's passion. Was it right to leave this way? She called on fate for a sign and threw herself against the door. Bang! She waited a moment, but he slept on. Avant, then, out into the night. Splud! Cecil House was a breath away. What if some pampered laddie saw her in Rutland's clothes? Oxford. There was the rub. 
If she ran into him, he would turn her over to Mildred. She could not hesitate. She lunged out the door, and with her furious step she felt a burn between her legs. The burn, the burn of lost virginity. Is it possible? So cruel intent, so hasty heat, and so soon spent, from love to hate, and thenceforth to relent. Is it possible? Wyatt's verse cascaded in Constance's mind, no longer a well-worded ode to lofty ideals, but something new, the fresh pain of an understanding that passion and wanting and fulfillment meant nothing. Wyatt loved his lady, and she tricked him, betrayed him. Wyatt was Constance's poet. How she would have cherished him. The air was sharp, the darkness malignant. She had paid no mind to it when Rutland buried her across the garden. But at this hour, alone, was it more judicious to go by water or foot to Cheapside? Either way held risk. She reached into Rutland's cloak. Her hand meant a purse heavy with enough coins to hire conveyance to the inn and to bribe the watch. Her clothes were grand. She would have authority. Dodging shadowy flowerbeds, fountains, and statues, she made it to the back gate of Bedford House and out into the Strand. Life-crushing disappointment made her quite agile and gave her strength. She walked quickly, and it was not long before Temple Bar came into view. Men loitered, link boys, hostelers, litters for hire. This was the place to find transport. She approached the bar to walk straight through. She would not hesitate. Sir, called a big-bellied lout. "'Tis far past curfew!' Rage welled up in Constance. She bellowed in the deepest register she could muster. "'Who are you to inquire of me, dog? Do you not see my worth? I take a link boy and a litter, and I am on my way!' She kept her eyes forward, listening to the jostling, bargaining who would take her. A boy ran before her, his rope bright. "'Sir, where go you?' "'Arundel Inn.' "'I know a quick way.' "'Sirrah!' Would you have me torch your hair? You think I know not the hidden meaning of a quick way where your friends lie in wait? Constance boomed. Indeed, sir, I am honest. I will not have it. Oh, sirrah, bring me a conveyance. Boy, light the way, and you too, lad, I have coin for all. Climbing in, paying, pulling the curtain. She relaxed as they were underway. Rutland would wake, she thought. His clothes would be gone, and so would she. He would be sad. He loved her, even if he was too weak to stand up to the Queen. It was miraculous to be close to him. Why could he not tell the Queen of their love? Why could Rutland not help her, pull her out of this swamp of her family and the Countess of Lennox? What kind of chivalry had Rutland? None. She could be Philomena's servant, or she could go home to Stoner. No, she could not go home. She had run away from Charles Paget and from conspiracy. Her aunt would never forgive her. There was nowhere to go. She was trapped. The Arundel Inn could be her only destination. My heart goes out to Constance. She thinks the situation is one thing, and he thinks it's another. She genuinely can't see another way out. And she thinks that Rutland is so in love and so powerful within the court that he can solve all her problems. And things don't work like that. It's not as if Rutland is at the top of the great chain of being. Do you mean he's God? <laughs> <laughs> oh, whoops. I guess I kind of meant king. But 
Constance may believe in what we now call true love, the idea that love holds such magic that it would change behaviors, transcend class, save the lovers, but that is actually not the way love is considered in this time period. No, true love, as some people call it, is usually considered an 18th century concept. This idea of true love is in magazines from 1740 on, and like most things, reflects the times that it's in. You think so? I mean, absolutely. Currently, we're in a very scientific time. And so many of the ideas about love reflect that. The idea that love is a biological imperative for finding a mate, or that love and attraction is simply the release of dopamine, or that one chemical makes us feel lust and another attachment. We're seeing it all through science. Well, I guess I see your kind of depressing point. (laughs) (laughs) While some people, even today, may think love is a duty to God or personal fulfillment and satisfaction, the popular articles take a very scientific approach. And in the 18th century, there was a growing wave of individualism. And with that, love became a singular, not a community event. The love of one individual for another, a love match. But even though in the 18th century there was that idea of the love match and the idea of an individual, there were still societal rules of first love, what you should do and say, because there was still an idea of executing love in a correct way. Not just any old love can be true love at first sight. It's a way that you immediately feel a deep kinship with someone. The trick is, I suppose, is that both people must be feeling it even if you don't know the person. But it does have a strong objectification aspect to it. In our story, Charles feels he has a special connection to Constance, but it's based entirely on his own ideas about what he values. He doesn't see her as a person. He doesn't listen even one bit. He has no idea what she's really like. He can objectify with the best of them. It's around her goodness, around her godliness, things that he's convinced himself to value over everything else. Not her hotness. (laughs) No, hotness could lead him to hell. So he would say angelic beauty, even though he would feel it as hotness, (laughs) he would call it angelic beauty. But this is how things are at the time. In the beginning, Constance uses the same types of measurements, and she intends to marry Charles, so she assumes they will have love. I think that's a common hope in arranged or close to arranged matches. In the Valentine's Day rituals that we talked about, whoever you set eyes on or chose by lottery could be your love for the day or your Valentine. And you went with it. You know, you didn't wait and see if they liked anything you liked. But there was so much less choice, and expectations were strong, and there just wasn't the possibility of developing as many preferences. People didn't spend so much time alone with each other before they got married. They didn't live together before they got married. And they didn't have as much choice. They wouldn't decide to have kids or not have kids, to have pets, to not have pets. Well, you had kids. To start the organic (laughs) farm or not start the organic farm. I mean, you were sort of in your place, right? Yeah, you had kids if you could have kids. And hopefully they survived. You know, and in Tudor times, love that affected a person outside of marriage is more of a crazed force that can make you a fool or actually an ass or a donkey, as in Midsummer Night's Dream. And love can lead you to your own destruction. It wasn't a way of redeeming you as a person, finding true love. So marriage was just part of the mechanics of society. During the Tudor period, very little is about your personal preferences because of the great chain of being and that chain has a specific order 
Children, the ones who would be getting married, are subject to their parents. The father is the first in the chain. Then, of course, the mother, the son, and the daughter are last in the great chain of being. But the boys were also compelled to marry in a certain way. Men had more choice, perhaps, than women did, but they also didn't have a lot of choice. And for parents... Marrying your daughter well was an absolute moral obligation, Mm -hmm. an obligation before God and country. And some men would even suggest who their daughter should marry in their wills in case they died before their daughter was of marriageable age. It's not that they necessarily picked someone, but they would nominate someone. He would be a good choice. Well, at a time when a marriage was a woman's profession and what she aspired to, to get herself off her parents' hands. A good marriage was like the way a father would advise a daughter now to go into a certain profession or pay for a certain graduate school or discuss business or whatever. I mean, that that was a woman's business at the time was making a good marriage. To be fair, these marriages were arranged to preserve everything. Things on a family scale, like wealth and the bigger scale fitting into the society and the chain of being, these marriages were not compelled. There was a whole movement from the Middle Ages into the early modern period where women and men were less compelled, mainly through veto power, not through, oh, I just want to marry somebody, but through like saying, I don't want to marry marry that that particular person. Yeah. I see that. Like, even Constance, for instance, she tries to veto Charles and makes arguments that to her seem vetoable. And also, she tries to veto the second son, Herbert, with Elizabeth Clinton. And Queen Elizabeth is always vetoing who she should marry. She's queen, so it's different. But historically, you could say no to the marriage. Which I do feel like caused many arguments between parents and daughters, and sons too, probably. Well, I mean, we talked about Henry VIII's sister, Mary Tudor, who wanted to marry someone else, and Henry made a deal with her that if she went along with the marriage that he wanted for her to the King of France, she could marry who she wanted to the next time. She sort of threatened to veto the marriage a little bit. He had to work with her. But I think many daughters were brought up to believe that marriage and family is the way to lead a godly life. And when Constance tried to veto her marriage to Charles, she argues that he's not fulfilling his duty, Mm -hmm. his moral duty. And if you're a young woman who wants to run your own household, to have stature in town, marriage is the only thing. Even if you don't want those things, marriage was the only thing. Being a nun wasn't even an option after all the monasteries were closed. It wouldn't be an option to Constance at this point if she wanted to stay in England. She'd have to leave the country to be a nun. That's why entering into a relationship is so serious. Marriage is about the whole family and also the land. It's not about the couple. Yeah, and marriage is also so serious because, of course, it couldn't be dissolved. There was no divorce, so you would have to go through a complicated process of proving that the marriage never should have happened in the first place and getting it annulled. I mean, maybe in the upper classes, people had the power to go through that whole process, but I think probably people who were less rich, that was just an impossibility. While the woman isn't free to choose just whoever she wants, you could make the argument that the male inheritor of this state is also not free. So I'm sure plenty of sons, I mean, particularly firstborn sons, also argued. And through that lens, Rutland is in fact the least free of the men involved with Constance. It's not to apologize for his behavior. He thinks that she understands what's going on. The idea that, you know, Rutland thinks she knows my limitations 
patience, but she wants to be with me anyway. He doesn't think he has to explain that to her because to him the situation is so obvious. And the two other men, Charles Paget and Herbert, are not going to inherit. They're not first sons. They're both second sons. So they would be more able to pick who they would like to marry. And in addition, Roland is actually a ward of the queen. That means that the queen receives the earnings of his land until he comes of age. And also for young men like Rutland, that is rich orphans who are in the care of the courts. Sometimes a marriage is arranged when the wardship is taken on. The family arranges that the ward has to marry the daughter of the family at the very beginning of it. And the ward could only be, well, two years old. Or, you exactly, know, yeah. babies. And then when he's older, if he doesn't want to marry the girl, he could actually be sold to another family. Literally, they would have bidding wars. And the new custodian of the ward would pay the old custodian. Then the new custodian would get the earnings from the ward's property. And the ward would have to marry whoever the new custodian said any. Anyway, so it was not a good deal, actually. <laughs> oh, to be a ward? I mean, I guess you hoped that you would have this relationship with the queen and she would give you lands and it would work to your favor. But real Rutland may not have had this exact threat put on him, but there's no doubt there were many expectations that the queen and Cecil and Mildred all had about whom he would marry. And he probably thought fulfilling these expectations was the exact right thing to do. And actually, financially, he was sort of bound by them. That's right. And despite being part of this crazy system, I don't think we can assume that the real historical Rutland felt constrained, or as we would say now, denied agency by this expectation. Society enforced and celebrated the idea that he should marry the richest girl of the highest noble. Society also gave him the ability not to have to work. You know, there's some buy-in here with the aristocracy. There are certain things that you have to do and there are certain things that you get out of it. You don't have to have a job. You don't have to have a trade. You can live off your lands. You can be a gentleman. You can be at court. You can try to get favor and, and position from the queen. And in exchange, you have to marry the person they tell you to marry. And I think for many people, that was a pretty good deal, especially because as we've seen through this journey of researching for this project, the idea that people had extramarital affairs was really very casual. You figured, well, you know, I have this spouse who maybe isn't the perfect person for me, but we'll have some children and then I'll live at court and she'll live in the country or I'll live at court and he'll (laughs) live in the country. And people found ways not to live together all the time. It's like legacy. If your family always goes to some wonderful university, there's a good chance you want to go there too. And you might feel it's a great thing and that you're a Harvard man or a Yale man or a Yale woman. To go against that is to go against everything that your family stands for. And I think most people went along with it. As you said, he could easily have a wonderful mistress in our story. That would be Constance. And he could love her very much. Nothing stopping him from loving her in his mind. No, or as he says, taking care of her children and giving her a good life. And what was to be gained if he opposed his custodians and the queen? It wouldn't be good for him. He would lose income, social stature, power, friends. And in his mind, he would make himself and the wife miserable. So he would think he was bringing her down too. It just does not sound appealing in any way. This ward system really flourished in the Tudor period. And it's interesting because we often think of the Puritan as being intolerant bad guys. But one of the very influential things that they did during this period was they promoted a belief in what in the modern day we would kind of call family closeness. And lots of Queen Elizabeth's closest advisors were Puritans.
Americans, William Cecil, Francis Walsingham, Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester. So it was influencing the culture. And this this is early on in the movement. So there's lots of thought and not much dogma and certainly not this idea of closing down the theaters and things like that, because Robert Dudley was very supportive of the theater. And as we've said, so was William Cecil. It isn't the sort of Puritanism as the way we might think of it now. Also, the Puritans, at this point, when they're like thinking about things, they had the idea that a Christian marriage involved love between the partners, and it shouldn't just be done to enlarge the wealth of a particular family. And also, not only that the parents should love each other, but the parents should also love the children in <laughs> a personal way. Right. In a, yeah. Not just in, oh... I will take care of you and make the best things for you, but yes. actually have a personal relationship with your children. And the idea that you should be kind to your children and have a relationship with them was an early Puritan idea. And it's what we would now think of as kind of a nuclear family. It puts the idea that Mildred Cecil was a Puritan in a different light than we might hear that word now. From what we know about her, which is, in my opinion, not enough, she was close with her children and with her husband. And maybe that sprang from all these ideas she was thinking about. It's a bit of a circular question, isn't it? I mean, was she attracted to being a Puritan because it supported ideas and values she believed in? Or did it appeal to her and change how she thought of things? Some of both. But it didn't catch on right away with most of the nobles because the Puritans had different moral standards. They believed both women and men should be faithful and that adultery was wrong for men as well as for women. The Puritans promoted the idea that you should marry someone you were attracted to and not just someone for money. But this didn't really become a serious wave in culture until the mid or late 17th century. It affects so many, can I say, systemic things. It's a huge change. Rutland feels like Constance as a mistress is perfectly fine. But if you have to have a love match to be a good Christian? Constance wants a relationship that involves love, but she would need a huge dowry to marry a man like Rutland. At this time, for a peer as high as Rutland to really consider any type of attraction, it's probably not in the cards for him. From 1540 to 1569, 54% of all men who were titled peers married women of that same tiny class. And actually, the genetic effects, they didn't call them genetic effects, they became evident. You could see that they were too inbred. Under Henry, there were some high city officials' daughters that married into the aristocracy, and Henry would often raise the merchant family to nobility. But Elizabeth actually stopped that. There was only one intermarriage between the merchants and the aristocracy from 1561 until 1590. That's a long time. Wow. Let's not say that Henry did it out of some sort of sense of fairness or egalitarianism. No, 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 no. How could we how could we attribute those things to Henry? It was because Henry always needed money and the merchants were making money and the peers were spending it. And there was also the debt left from the War of the Roses. I don't know how much there was because I think Henry VII was actually quite good with money, but there were debts from mm -hmm. wars, and Henry's economy was just a mess. But in fact, I do think Elizabeth's choice was ideological. She believed the peers and the nobles were their own separate class and should not mix. And Constance is very aware of her class, but Constance can't think about all those things right now. She's just aware of her heartbreak. She's not sort of logicking it out and no, what does no. society say? No, she even threatens, not very seriously, to end it all over this failed love. Perhaps she's been reading too much. No, suicide in Shakespeare's time in the Tudor period, this was paradoxical. On one hand, it carries the medieval Christian association of shame 
shame and despair. Yet, on the other hand, it's kind of seen as noble because of the Renaissance tradition of honor. The Renaissance is this looking back at Greek and Roman ideas and bringing those into a Christian light. You know, Constance isn't serious. She's indulging herself, her crazy emotion state, drinking black coffee, smoking cigarettes, and listening to <laughs> raspy songs. love songs. <laughs> and they didn't even call it suicide at this time. That word was came into existence a few hundred years later. At that time, they called it self-murder. At first, they called it murdering oneself, which seems strangely formal to me. I guess you'd speak about it in the third person. I guess. I don't know. You're right, though. It wasn't until the very end of the 16th century that they called it self-murder, the more casual. Mm -hmm. And the idea of suicide was much later. And Constance doesn't want to risk hell because hell was a serious option. Constance is more interested in lamenting, not violence. But what about Philomena? Do you think there's a possibility that she could marry outside her class? She's a rich woman. Well, even as a merchant in Henry's time, she wouldn't be rich enough to move classes. She would have to be the daughter of someone who had wealth or trade that the king wanted, and she doesn't have that. What about Paget? In this period, Charles Paget would consider Constance 100% in the wrong because she's breaking her betrothal to him. She's having sex behind his back, and for Charles, while he is a problematic person, from his point of view, and he would say from God's point of view, she's in the wrong. He was even doing her a kindness, as we know, because Constance doesn't have much dowry. But what she does have is piety, and that's what Charles wants. He thought she had that, but maybe she never did. Well, next time we'll see how she manages all of this. So tune in next time for more Times Riddle and more Tudor-minded talk. <laughs> <laughs>